The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Is Rob Campbell on the show with us? I assume he is. Are we, are we the only? <laughs> otherwise, otherwise this is listeners' cha- only chance to have a Rob Campbell-free half hour today. <laughs> Kia ora tate, this is Gone By Lunchtime. I'm Toby Manhai here with Ben Thomas, freshly returned from Wairoa. How are you? Are you all right? Back in the city. Everything okay? What's the latest news from Wairoa? Uh, well, heavy rain overnight um, the previous night. Um, the river was swelling up again. Um, you know, people were sort of getting ready to evacuate. A lot of COVID uh, has broken out in the town. Um, and I think by the time this comes out, Chris Hipkins either will have visited Wairoa. Well, he couldn't make it the first time because of a low cloud, and I think there might be an issue with the helicopter. I think there's a helicopter this time. Mm. So, um, For the first time ever, an issue with one of the New Zealand Defence Forces. (laughs) (laughs) So Chris Chris Hipkins is still relying on Gone By Lunchtime for his intel about (laughs) 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 Wairoa. Unable to get there and uh, and be on the ground. Did, did, did Did I mention the Kieran McNulty visit? In our last podcast? I think you touched on the Karen McAnulty. Okay. Is it? Okay. But can give you touch us on again. that again? No, I just can't remember. Did I... I can't remember if I told... Did I tell about the Nissan Micro? Don't know that he did. Did the, he? Because the, 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 the chopper was waiting in a... Um, like a, a field, you know, sort of just one of these random fields in a small town. There were all these mm. little kids sort of around it. And I thought, that's probably for a VIP. And then... Um, I mean, like, is, is, you know, the minister in there? And this real beat-up <laughs> Nissan Micro, like, is just driving around the road. And they obviously, and it's obviously been caught in the floods. Like, it looks like the colour of, you know, it's quite brown and sort of so disgusting sweet. looking. And it just sort of diverts off the road onto the field and then just sort of <laughs> drives around the helicopter, getting a better look. And you see these sort of soldiers kind of... <laughs> Standing up, like, what do we do? And you know, it's kind of like a small dog running around a big dog or something. And then it just—I I thought it was going to get stuck in the field, you know. It's got like everything was pretty wet. Was and it basically doing donuts around the house? Pr- pretty much, yeah. And uh, after a few circuits, they just went on their way. Vibes. And wow. uh, and then later, I think about five minutes later, McAnulty appeared and ran across the field, pulling on his Nima jacket, like kind of mm. Top Gun Maverick or something. Mm. And, and did he slide into that vehicle like the Jukes of Hazard style, <laughs> right through the passenger 
Uh, I didn't. I didn't have good visibility on that. Um, it's safe to assume but you did. What, you know, one thing the kids of Waira are getting a lot of is running into the area where choppers are lifting off and then acting stricken as if they have been thrown <laughs> onto the ground. <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot of that going on. Amazing. Yeah. But anyway, that's by the by. Annabelle Matha, kia ora. Kia ora. How are you? I'm very well. How's your new rival podcast, Mata? Um, yes, it's ticking along. We had the Minister for the East Coast last week, Kitty Tapu Allen. Mm. Speaking of the East Coast, um, I was looking at Instagram last night and my cousin lives in Gisborne and she'd taken a photo of a bath that she'd run her son, which was green and brown, and made a comment about how they've been told that that water was safe to drink. And then she sent me a link to an article about, have you heard about this, how the Navy offered, um, had a whole lot of water to supply Gisborne, and it was turned down because they weren't considered official water suppliers. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I didn't catch that. There is some discussion. <laughs> no, like, like, is seriously, this, is this, seriously. Is this, is this not Perrier? We're not getting home brand. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Um, kia ora, te ai here. Tēnā Thank you Toby. for looking after us. All, all well uh, in your world? Yeah, still riding high off Te Whanaapanui, taking out to Matatini. My faves. I love Te Whanaapanui. It's that funny thing after Matatini, you know, you spend four days with, you know, several thousand of your nearest and dearest. Mm. And then, you know, the competition finishes and you go through this, like, sad withdrawal period of going back to your normal life. But it was an incredible competition. It was my first time. I didn't know how incredible wow, it was. Wow, miharo. Yeah. Charlotte Moody Lanning has been writing about it for us on the spin-off and I think is going to write another piece this week, but was talking quite um, powerfully about the extent to which it stays with you when you leave the event. Mm. So look out for that piece. What went down? Anything go down of, of note apart from the competition, Annabelle? Um, there was a, an interesting exchange during the porphyry between Ngāti Whātua and Waikato. There's obviously been a lot of tension between those two groups um, over the last few years. It's gone all the way to the High Court over um, how the government is managing um, their settlements and Ngāti Whātua having the first right of refusal in Auckland, but mm. because there's a, a obviously a lack of land to share. Um, there's been times when Waikato have been given um, the opportunity to access that land before they do anyway, it's gone to court. So some of that um, played out during um, the porphyry and as Penetaui said, Penetaui is Shane Jones's son, um, it's a strange day when Ngāpuhi become the peacekeepers because <laughs> in the end Ngāpuhi had to uh, walk across the field and pick up the koha that um, that Whātua um, had declined to pick up. Wow. So interesting times and ultimately it just comes back to how Crown policy can be really damaging to inter-iwi relationships mm. and that's a sorry thing to say. What's the tikanga of that? Is that a kind of acceptable thing, way, way to use a porphyry at an event like that? Is that how well, it goes? Well, it's, it's up that... to the parties in, involved. You know, there's varying opinions in Te Ao Māori about whether or not it was appropriate um, for whether Te Matatini was the appropriate forum to 
to debate those issues, um, you know, given that it's a, a, a pan-tribal nation, you know, national competition. But ultimately, the porphyry was was held, you know, within Ngāti Whātua's rohi, and it is up to them to set the tikanga. And, um, you know, people really enjoyed um, witnessing the spectacle of these two iwi debating their their issues in Te Reo Māori on the paipai, so, mm. yeah. The other uh, political angle on Timatatini, of course, is the ongoing uh, debate around whether or not there is sufficient funding, particularly when compared to the NZSO and... New Zealand Ballet. New Zealand Ballet. Uh, that's a, is it Te Pāti Māori is pushing hard on that? Is there any sense that there'll be any movement on that front? Well, it's been a long-running issue because it's not a new thing. It's been happening for years, and they did get a million-dollar top-up a few years ago, but the reality is I think they only get $2.9 million for a competition that involves 2,000 performers, tens and tens and tens of thousands of spectators and literally millions of viewers when you count the online engagement and by comparison to the NZSO who doesn't have anywhere near that level of engagement or participation, you know, I think they get around $20 million. Um, New Zealand Ballet gets slightly less and so, you know, it's been debated for many years. Uh, Rawiri Waititi and um, Te Pāti Māori took the opportunity to raise it again at this year's Matatini. Kind of the way I read the response to it from from government is that, um, that while they would, you know, like to give more money to them, that given we've just gone through a crisis, of epic proportions that there may not be a whole lot of money ar around. I don't think that's going to wash with a lot of Māori. You know, it's not something that's just cropped up. It's been a systemic failing by multiple governments to adequately fund um, te matatini to the level that it, that it should be. And when you look at the, um, the impact that it has economically for Māori, small Māori businesses, the health outcomes, all of those things. It has to be probably the most successful festival, arts festival held in Aotearoa and um, it should really get the funding it deserves. Because if you can do that on 2.9 million, imagine what you could achieve if you were getting equitable funding. I think that's the question is what, <clears throat> you know, what do you get for the extra funding? It's a bit of a red herring kind of comparing it to the NZSO and the Royal New Zealand Ballet in the sense that they're performing arts organisations. You know, you, you have to keep a company together or an orchestra together. You have to pay them for them to do their jobs, that kind of thing. To Maritini is a different sort of thing. It's competition. Well, that's now, because can... it's not funded. They might like oh, to yeah. have companies and paid employees and paid performers no, 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 who sure, get but... to be professional artists as well. But <laughs> that's not an option because they can't afford to do it because they're not funded. Sure, but that's, that's, that is a different thing to Te Matatini itself as it is now, which is a competition for sort of unpaid groups. I mean, obviously there's ways that they could use the money, but I, I think it, it, it is a... I think it's a kind, it, it, and none of my comments should be taken as defending the orchestral sector and its funding, um, but I, I, I think it is... Um, I, th I think the Māori Party knows what it's doing when it sort of compares, the, you know, these fusty old sort of white sort of organisations 
to Tematatini, even though they're not sort of direct one-for-one comparisons in terms of you know what the what the, the kind of cost structures and overheads are. Um, you know, it's probably probably is a very good argument for increasing Tamatatini funding to take the pressure off, you know, fundraising for getting groups to Tamatatini and stuff. You know, there's only so many sort of raffles and community fundraising things that you can do, you know, in a, in a, in a given time, in a given community. Um, and it would probably, that would probably take a lot of pressure off. You're right, you know, there probably is, there probably is scope for some kind of national sort of, you know, touring group or something, you know, and that's something that they should probably look at. Yeah, paying for tutors, um, ensuring that the host, that the iwi who are hosting aren't left to pick up um, the bill. Why can't um, I, I, I think, I think <laughs> yeah, I think too that um, the the comparison to the um, New Zealand Symphony Orchestra and the New Zealand Ballet hasn't come from the Māori Party. It's a comparison that's been made going back, you know, m- more than ten years by various. Um, Groups and advocates, but you know, just simple things like being able to have to uh, have it like pay the people who work for Te Matatini on their executive properly and have more people come in. There's all sorts of things they can do. And, Could go and annual because it's, it's every second year at the moment, isn't it? It's every second year, and the in the intervening year is when all the regional competitions mm. run. So all around the country, there's a whole lot of regional competitions that involve even more groups. And the the ones that you know, depending on how many groups perform, um, a certain amount get to go forward to the nationals. So when you look at the overarching thing, not just the groups that turn up at the Matatini, but the ones that also participate in all the regional competitions, it's you know, it's incredible what what Maori are able to achieve just through their aroha, their passion, and their volunteer mahi. I should say it's March the first today. White rabbits. Pinch and a punch. Um, thanks to members, spin-off members, the greatest, the very greatest. Um, we're going to talk a bit more about the cyclone recovery and maybe a bit of return to parliament, a bit of Maureen Pugh. But first, let's discuss Rob Campbell, who I assume was at Te Matatini. He would have been <laughs> out and about, probably on the stage. You cannot miss Rob Campbell, who was until recently the chair of Te Whatu Ora, the Health New Zealand uh, organisation, but is no longer because he posted on LinkedIn about Nationals Three Waters policy, which will, or Three Waters alternative policy, which we'll come to in a moment too. And now he's still at the time of podding. He remains chair of the Environment Protection Authority, but his head is being called for there. The Post criticised National suggested it was, I think his words were thinly veiled dog whistling in terms of the removal of the co-governance element. Ben, the Rob Campbell show. He's quite a fascinating figure, isn't he? I mean, he, you know, he started off as a sort of union guy, strong socialist and journeyed all his way to the chair of Sky City, which is... Yeah, he's he's got this complicated history. He was a he was a leading figure in the trade unionist movement in the eighties, when you know the Labour government of that time pivoted towards what is now called neoliberalism. Um, Rob kind of followed them to the boardrooms and worked with you know some of the largest companies in New Zealand. Became a professional director. Um, you know there are some very mixed feelings. You know there have been very mixed feelings about him on the left of politics for you know some time. Um, 
probably over the last sort of decade in terms of public pronouncements, there's been a real sort of journey, you know, sort of road to Damascus maybe sort of that's been charted pretty publicly where he's become much more vocal about the responsibility, you know, corporate corporate responsibilities towards the environment, um, you know, on social issues, um, probably more pronouncedly left-wing uh, in his sort of commentary. And, you know, and as he said on Kim Hill, he's been a Crown Entity Director, you know, for many years, um, but he was selected to chair uh, Te Water, the, the new health authority, um, and you know, when I when I saw these comments, I was like, "Well, it's 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 flagrantly overstepping the line, right?" The the crown entities, crown crown entity chairs are bound by the public sector code of conduct or, or the crown entity code of conduct, which is very similar to the public sector code of conduct um, by the new public service act from twenty twenty, and. It has this requirement for political impartiality, and what that means is that not that you can't have any sort of opinions about um, you know things that are happening in politics or issues of the day, but when you you know when you start kind of accusing the opposition leader who may well be the prime minister in sort of nine or ten months and thus ultimately responsible for the crown entity that you're um, you know that you're chairing you're really stepping into politicising things. Um, he, I mean, he's not quite a sort of senior public civil... Senior, senior public he's he's servant, not a public servant. He? But he's sort of quasi, no, no. you know, in that... He's, he's, he's half that. I think that's what I've considered. And, 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 and there is a bit of confusion in the sense that Crown entities are meant to be a sort of a little bit more independent than the public service. And when you go through the whole range of these entities, then you get to sort of um, independent crown entities, which are actually really function very much at arm's length from government. Health NZ is what's called a crown agent, so it's the least independent of the crown entities. And honestly, you could probably ask a lot of people and they would scratch their heads and not really be able to tell you why Health NZ is a crown entity rather than a government department. Um, except for, you know, as a sort of historical hangover from the DHB structure. Um, there's no obvious reason to me why it would be a Crown entity, but, you know, it, it is. But because its work is so closely entangled, um, you know, with the core Crown's work, um, you know, they are in charge of implementing government policy of the day. You know, there are some Crown entities where they just sort of have to read and consider the Minister's letter of expectations, whereas Health NZ is responsible for delivering government health policy. It's got a very wide remit to do that. You know, it's also in charge of transitioning away from the DHBs. And that's a process that isn't finished yet. These health reforms, which whereby Health NZ replaced DHBs, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what's actually happening in the system. So yeah. that's a way of saying that Rob Campbell had a position of huge power and influence. Um, you know, he he's not just somebody who was kind of turning up to meetings claiming 30 grand a year to sort of pretend he had read some board papers. He was a very active chair. And I, for the life of me, can't quite figure out. It seems to be a real affliction of the modern age. You know, initially we would have thought that you know, when social media came around, the idea was that voices that hadn't previously been heard, who might have solutions or ideas that would otherwise be overlooked, could now be sort of enlisted to, you know, help the public good or inform debate. Rob Campbell's a guy who's at the very centre 
of an incredibly important and wide-ranging government reform, and he has a lot of leeway and influence over that. But he, in the end, he decided posting was more important to him than continuing on in that role, um, which is a pretty fascinating insight into where, where we sort of are in the culture. Yeah. You, you said before we called it poster's disease. It is that the kind of – so basically the, the – And he just kept doubling down because I, I'm not even sure it would have been fatal, those those comments on the weekend. Mm. Those, those are the sorts of things that you could easily, I think – Well, that's it. Just Isn't it? walk back, apologise for, say, sorry, I probably overstepped the mark yeah. there. I've apologised to Mr Luxon. I'm now. He's know. not a back down apology kind of guy, though, is he? <laughs> like, he not, said, no. I, "You know, I might be neutral, but I won't be neutered." And there was some talk that he had called uh, Aisha Viral, the, the the health minister, and 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 apologised. Well, he didn't. If he'd apologised, he the only thing he was apologising for was any offence taken. I think those were the words he used in terms of what he'd said to Christopher Luxon when he rang him. But he wasn't. He wasn't saying this was an error of judgment, which. W- Probably that's all he needed to do. This was an era of judgment. Uh, I just wanted the pheromones from LinkedIn. You know what it's like. <laughs> and I won't do it again. He, he didn't give the, leave the government with very much choice other than to get rid of him because, you know, he doubled down, busted out a body slam suplex. It was like, <laughs> it was getting hectic. And, you know, clearly he's a guy with strong convictions and good on him. And I, I heard him this morning talking about his commitment to the treaty and equitable outcome. So I'm sure there are a lot of Māori who see him as a as an influential ally. The thing about that, though, is that, you know, as an ally, sometimes it's in the best interest of the overall kaupapa if you let your mahi do the talking and you work within the confines of the system to achieve that. I, I did think that there was a bit of irony to see a lot of the free speeches and the anti-cancellation fans um, calling for his um, resignation. But uh, Richard Preble came out in support of his old mate Rob Campbell and called it censorship <laughs> yeah. on the part of the, these people like the ACT Party calling for him to stand down. But yeah, I think he, he, he crossed the line. Surely he's not naive enough to think that. You know that he hmm. that he didn't, and the government doesn't want this little issue bubbling away when they've got other things to be worried about. No, he essentially is, became a it's, liability. It's, I mean, as, as as Ben says, it's such a massive uh, organisation, such a massive agency, such a massive reform that it's still in in its infancy, really, in terms of reshaping things. So it's got to be disruptive, and it it seems weird that he, in the end, couldn't kind of give a pound of flesh <laughs> on 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 this on LinkedIn, just just log off and it, it carry was, on. That's that's what puzzles me. I think Len Cook, the former New Zealand government statistician, gave a very uh, good and thoughtful interview to Morning Report this week. And one of the things that he said was, you know, look, one of the things that you have to consider is if the public discourse on Three Waters policy would suffer enormously from Rob Campbell not commenting, <laughs> then that might change the calculus on what was acceptable. Right. But, you know, this is sort of the thing is... It's not an exercise in whistleblowing, it's an exercise in reckons, isn't what, it? What are any of, yeah, what are any of us adding yeah. with the takes, you know, and, well, versus... Well, well, because one of the things he brought up with Kim Hill was... 
you know, he feels the government is kind of trying to retreat from co-governance, however yeah. broadly you define that. I would have thought that in the area where it is, well, at least by the government's definition and Rob Campbell's definition, I don't think the Māori Health Authority is co-governance, but, you know, we've covered that yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. If by this broad definition of just working in partnership in some inchoate way with Māori, mm. this is a co-governance enterprise, mm. this is the one that's the most established so far by the government, and it's the one with the best chance of being bedded in. The national government has said they won't repeal the, the NZ, health NZ, and you know you can see there's probably leeway on the health on the Māori Health Authority if that's sort of mm. far enough advanced. And you would think that if you were that com committed to this principle, you would just get stuck in and try and make it work here in the kind of flagship rather than, you know, just posting mm. about it, you know, in all, all sorts of other areas. Leaving all of that to one side, was he right? The, the, the criticism was of the three waters policy as laid out by the National Party, people have been waiting for for a long time, saying it's all very well to criticise Three Waters, demands, you know, insist that it will be repealed in the first 100 days. It, 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 it's been very advantageous to the parties of the opposition through the course of last year, especially that Three Waters was so poorly articulated, probably badly designed. Some of that uh, was because of co-governance claims and some of it was, was because of... Uh, uh, unfortunate racist underbelly that does, continues to exist in New Zealand. What Rob Campbell said was that it was dog whistling. Um, the policy was released on Saturday morning. I know Barry Soper noted that it was a pretty you, unusual place. I don't know place. if you could call it dog whistling because they've been blatant about it, that they don't agree with the co-governance so element of... <laughs> yeah, I think, it's just, I think it's just plain old human whistling or talking out loudness. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the policy, the Na Nationals Three Waters policy, like it's, it's strong on vibes but lacking in detail. So. And it, it really it removes the four entities. It reverts to council ownership. It... Uh, exhorts councils to work with other councils for reasons that aren't clear what the incentives would be at all. It introduces a second water regulator to the one already established under the Three Waters le legislation, which would sit within ComCom. Oh, yeah, although that, that will be a feature. That's a feature of the current reforms as well. The second regulator? The, uh, yeah, having, having an economic regulator. So that's, that's the subject of legislation that's currently before the House. The thing that's interesting about it is that it... I think you could make an argument that there seems to be an element of magical thinking that's starting to creep into internationals' response to different issues like, you know, Nicola Willis with the whole, well, I just won't accept inflation, like just controlling inflation with their mind, which, you know, could, could quite possibly be, be very effective, I don't know. Um, and then this one where, where, you know, you're going to encourage councils to work together but then not say how the infrastructure is going to going to be funded. Well, councils have had a long time it really to 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 team up and work together on this, and it hasn't happened. So I'm not sure what it is about nationals' policy that would therefore encourage or prompt them to to get on with the business. It of sends been the, fixing their pipes with their imaginary money. It sends responsibility back to your favourite form of government, local government, and. Which is such a such a soup 
across the country, some unitary councils, some, you know, the, the, anyway, it's just, it's just such a, it's the, the real thing you would need to do to do this properly. No one has the appetite for, for it, I don't think, would be to, whether you go the full Thomas route and just nuke all of local government or just reorganise it in a way that there were, there's such an imbalance between, say, uh, the Auckland super city and then, you know, the, the, the Kaipara council up there, the road, there are some you know? councils that essentially have the same ratepayer base as a couple of large Auckland high schools. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've got clients in the Three Waters space, so, you know, I don't want to go too far either sort of end. So, Being but just neutral, in, ben. in terms of the sort of observation, <laughs> we will impart you. We're not neutral. You. <laughs> but the, the one thing I'd, I'd note is that the national policy, it looks to me like it was probably sort of rushed to market a bit. Um, it, it, it seems Which to be. Which is weird a, because you're right, but like the issue has been around for a little while. It, it, it seems to be a mashup of the various different solutions proposed um, by, 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 by council mayors leaders, and councils yeah. without the component of and central government will pay for it all, which has been a, cr a crucial part of the all balance of those proposals. The balance sheet issue is, is absolutely central to Three Waters. Not, again, not articulated well, but the idea that small, small municipal authorities are not in a position to be able to go out there and borrow big to finance major overhauls of water infrastructure. Yeah, and that's the detail that's missing uh, here, is that if... if because the, the problem is not just, you know... Well, the problem is raising the money with, you know, councils at debt limits, with low ratepayer bases, you know, very constrained incomes. Mm. It, it's hard for them to borrow the sort of money that they need for, you know, the cliche New Zealand's a long, thin country that requires, you know, large networks to service, you know, pretty, a pretty um, uh, non-dense population, particularly in rural areas. And so cross-subsidisation was a feature of the Labour pr proposal. And you can't have cross-subsidisation if you only have one small council. And in terms of voluntary amalgamations, we already heard that after the Wayne Brown, Phil Major, um, Dan Gordon proposal mm. um, at the end of last year, where they said, well, we'll, you know, Councils that want to do it by themselves can, but smaller councils, you know, councils can amalgamate in order to get a bit more government help. And then immediately, I think to, I think all three of the mayors who announced that policy said, of course, we won't be amalgamating. We'll be fine <laughs> by ourselves. Yeah. So, you know, Whangarei said they wouldn't amalgamate. Auckland said they wouldn't amalgamate. And the far north, who have got, you know, these huge costs over a large area and a very poor rating base, are like, well, what do we do? So, I, look, I don't, I, don't think the, I don't think the policy... I don't think National have managed to square the circle on this extremely difficult issue. Um I, d I would agree with Annabelle. It's not dog whistling because they're just coming straight out and saying we don't think co-governance is the way to solve it. More so, you know, look, introducing iwi governance into water entities, you know, it's a new step, right? It's it's not the status quo. You, I, I, I don't think there's anything, you know, I, I think it's a defensible position to say, you know, well, why, why would we take this step? You know, the government... Um, you know, and, and there's arguments for it, which is, well, if you want balance sheet and operational separation, what do you get in there as a substitute for 
local government in terms of local representatives who will always be there. Well, iwi are a pretty good substitute for that. Um, you know, you talk about you know the, the skills that they would bring to the sort of very high level governance of the regional entities, traditional knowledge, traditional areas. You know, could bring in a treaty argument. So there's there's arguments for and against it, but uh, you know, I, I don't think that. You know, I don't. I don't think any policy should be written off entirely on the basis that, you know, it, it, it rejects an innovation in governance. Ben, you talked about the networks within New Zealand and the strangeness of New Zealand and its shape and the population spread, and we've seen very starkly in recent weeks how vulnerable those networks are, whether it's um, electricity or communications or water. Uh, the rebuild is coming soon. There are various amounts of money that have been thrown around, 10 billion, 13 billion. The finance minister says he's not sure yet, and so he's not going to lay out how that will be paid for until that number is um, set down. National Party is saying, you're going to do a cyclone tax, rule out a cyclone tax, Labor have the Labor government have have resisted that. Uh, the options that are open are to tax or to borrow or to cut or some combination of those three. One precedent that has been pointed to is the after the Queensland floods, twenty eleven, Julia Gillard did have a flood tax. Uh, and that was targeted at higher earners. She also cut infrastructure and climate mitigation programs, which <laughs> get, get less attention, which doesn't necessarily seem like such a smart call. And of course, we've also had a fourth option now, a lotto draw, which should should cover, you know, uh, none of it. But Ben, Ben, how do you how do you think this is going to play out? Do you think that that there will be pressure mounting? on Grant Robertson to rule out the tax approach? Is it reasonable to say there's no tax? Is there an appetite for a tax? Even going back before the cyclone, and I think actually before he was sworn in as Prime Minister, but after he had been installed as Labour leader, Chris Hipkins on the Ryan Bridge show, musing out loud about tax, said something along the lines of, you know, maybe not all New Zealanders are contributing their fair share <laughs> to tax. Mm. So I think the idea of a tax on higher earners, you know, this would probably be very high earners, you know, that sort of 180k kind of bracket that mm. um, was targeted at the last election. I, I think that something like that might have been on the cards anyway. And if that was something that was, you know, seen as, you know, as part of the relief effort, you know, that might be... That, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, New Zealand, in terms of borrowing, you know, we still do have low debt compared to a lot of other countries in the world. Um, and we always say it's for a rainy day. This was a literal rainy day. And the, you know, Adrian Orr has said that will stoke inflation because you're, you're just bringing in more money. Mm. Um, and, and there is, you know, there is a real risk of inflation, particularly in terms of things like building materials, construction. Um, but what if Nicola Willis doesn't accept the inflation? Will that mitigate the any borrowing that we do? Well, you know, part, part, part of inflation is driven by inflation expectations. So a good, a good, a positive state of mind is important. <laughs> What but, do you think, Annabelle, a tax, a cyclone tax? Well, I think wash? there's another really important option 
um, a fifth option that you haven't considered, Tobin, that's afterpay. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I yeah. mean, I I don't know if Grant Robertson listens to this podcast, but I could write him a letter about it. The terms are excellent. Uh-huh. Um, I think there's going to have to be some sort of um, flood relief fund set up for decades. Councils and the government have been arguing about, you know, who it should be that pays for upgrading flood protection assets and all of that stuff, and look where that's got us. I think there is an appetite um, to increase taxes, obviously not for normal people though, um, but, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the forestry industry, maybe, you know, taxing them or requiring them to contribute to a fund that is for um, flood relief and flood protection. Slash tax. I think, slash tax. I think that um, um, cutting spending is just not, not an option. We already have massively under-resourced services, which is part of the reason why this flood has affected us so badly in the first place. So I think the government is going to have to borrow and create a fund that um, that helps to deal with this because we're only going to get more of it. Quickly, because we're running out of time, did either of you catch the opening uh, stanzas of Parliament when it resumed properly when we had the Chris versus Chris show? First time in Parliament, Chris Hipkins taking questions in question time as Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's statement debate. Were you glued to that, both of you? No. I saw the Prime Minister's statement debate. Hmm. Yeah, it it is sort of interesting, but both of the major party leaders, you know, really have, we do seem much more down to sort of earth with our leaders right now. Um, You know, neither of them have the kind of star power of Jacinda Ardern or John Key before her. Um, and, And you sort of see that, you know, Hipkins up at the podium is much more sort of, He's much more of a straight shooter, as they say, than Jacinda Ardern. Not in terms of, of not in terms quite, of always quite, being quite, accurate. Quite bread, bread, bread and butter, really. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very straight, just like a boy from the heart. Um, he's had to walk back a few things. He had to walk back that claim in Parliament that uh, is that the yes. share of tax yes. had not gone up. Um, he had to walk back. Um, dismissing people being held at gunpoint as unsubstantiated rumours. Um, yeah, he, he got that tonally wrong a bit as well, didn't he, just in terms of, you know, not at least acknowledging the the, the reality of that. I mean... And I think other- people like it, and, and, you know, obviously acted quickly on Rob Campbell, and I think people find it refreshing when a politician can just sort of admit a mistake and move on. If mm. that's all they're doing, though, it starts to become a bit distracting. <laughs> The, 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 if they're just moving on to the next apology, it's sort of... It was um, not that we want to make it a scorecard kind of thing, but I think Chris Luxon definitely had the better of those t- sort of two encounters. In, in question time, uh, Chris Hipkins was less strong, partly because he messed up the number on the tax take and then the, all around that. But on the earlier day, remember, and I, we need to at least mention it, Chris Luxon, I think, was destabilised by the Maureen Pugh intervention that morning, which was... A, a, a really unfortunate thing to happen to National when they'd been, you know, trying to do best behaviour, don't muck it up, 
Well, in fact, Simon Bridges floats through everything, doesn't he? Because Simon Bridges was there as a reminder yeah. of not sticking your <laughs> oar in, and helpfully. And then Simon Bridges was also there as a reminder of the risk of Maureen Pugh. So when, <laughs> when she was brought out, I was standing on the tiles when the, the, and the head of national press was standing there right beside. It's like he had a taser to her, I think. Gaon <laughs> Esmond had described it as being like a hostage video when she came out. Anything to add to that? I think we're getting, we're getting, we're getting, a, we're getting a winded up um, noise from Tiaik. Very quickly, word on Chester Burrows. Um, pretty, pretty extraordinary uh, figure in New Zealand politics. Managed to do the rare thing of being principled, but also uniting people from just about every, every, every part of politics. Um, activists on all sides. Yeah, very sad. I mean, um, Chester was a minister when I was in the Beehive. He was just a really decent and nice person um, who really followed through his convictions and really lived them. Um, yeah, and, and very sad that he's sort of taken it, you know, you know far too soon, I think. Hmm, Kia ora, thanks, I hear thanks, listeners, thanks, members, back soon. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.